Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're heard in over 60 countries around the world. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And today we are broadcasting from the beautiful city of Los Angeles. Went to the Hollywood Bowl the other night and uh, watched Neil Diamond. And at 74, he was fantastic. But it's just such a magnificent venue. So if you don't have the Hollywood Bowl, if you haven't been to the Hollywood Bowl and you don't have it on your bucket list, you, uh, you should go. Going again this week, actually. Lady Gaga's on, so I'm looking forward to that. But there's a great Forbes article this week about growing and scaling a startup, whether it's an exciting new market or whether it's a competitive and saturated one. One thing's for certain. It's never as straightforward as you'd like, and it's fraught with challenges. This is particularly so if you want to launch in a foreign country irrespective of whether English is the natural language or not. From inadvertently designing offensive logos or creating a highly offensive tagline, and this happened to um, me when I was working in Thailand with Coca-Cola, we came up with a tagline that was (laughs) highly offensive and the product stayed on the shelves for about three days. Um, do you know a lot of people fail to protect their intellectual property? They have property protected in the United States and they don't protect it in the new country. Or they're simply unable to penetrate the target market. There's so many things can go wrong, so many little customs that can really screw you up. So it takes some savvy business skills to ensure you don't sort of come running home with a big failure at your back. So let's get some advice from people who are experts on creating startups on foreign soil. The first piece of advice is don't try to do it on the cheap. But this is true in any market. But professional advice always seems expensive when you're starting out. But if you don't heed professional advice, it's going to work out to be a fuck sight more expensive. You can count on it. And while it's true that, you know, you're always watching your capital and, you you know, it's your lifeblood and you're being careful, the cost of bad legal advice, poor translation, poor accounting, not hiring the best staff will, in most cases anyway, end up being much more expensive than you would have paid out if you had paid for the best quality advice. The second piece of advice is just pack your bags and go. Visiting a country where you want to do business is the best way to find out how your customers live, think, how they operate. And in today's world of Skype, WhatsApp, IM, etc., doing business from your desk is easy. But as much as you need to trust and empower your team abroad, you've got to go and meet these people face to face especially true in countries across Asia or Latin America, where in-person interaction is much more appreciated than it is in, say, Western cultures. And Because we rely heavily on uh, conference calls and video calls, 
but they don't. They want to have, they want to see the whites of your eyes. So even if you don't have a physical presence in your target market, play, pay a visit to the grassroots community. Uh, Martin Telvari, CEO of Strategy at Slush, says they'll make you feel like a local and you'll get to know the right people who can help you move forward. Now, don't blatantly sell your product. Make sure you're helpful to them and create a win-win situation. And after you've made that personal connection, then you can stay in touch with email or Skype. The third piece of advice for building successful launch of a product in a foreign country is to be prepared and be patient. To launch a business across the whole of Asia will likely require a pretty heavy investment in technology, in people, in infrastructure, in places that you probably don't know very well. Sunita Kwa, Managing Director of Spotify in Asia, says... At Spotify, we ensure that we have a strong local music catalogue and a demand for the product before we take the plunge into a new territory. If you're going to roll out a music service to music fans who demand excellence, you want to make sure everything is perfectly in place for the launch. You need to think about that long-term game. The fourth piece of advice is to find partners who can help. Paul Elstrom, who's the Managing Director of Alta Ventures, they're a big leading venture capital fund, primarily in Latin America, I think, says trusted local partners with market expertise are the key to expanding and scaling in emerging markets. Before expanding into any new market, map the market and find the right trusted partners to work with. Then research the risks and the upsides of doing business in that geography. When scaling internationally, you've got to find partners with local market knowledge of, you know, the basic business things like um, taxes and legals and regulatory compliance. And you've got to build relationships with those who can assist with earlier customer traction. Uh, This is something that that was found out with CQS, uh, who did it brilliantly. And that brings me to the fifth key for being successful in a foreign market. It's to acquire local businesses. Every company has different touch points and different requirements for scaling rapidly in global markets. CQS International, it's an e-commerce insurance solution provider. They offer consumers the coverage they need at a price they can afford. So they're going for the C&D classes and... um, creating unique practical products for those classes. And I think that CQS has got the best strategy for entering into a foreign market that I've ever come across. You know, they've done it rapidly. Um, CQS CEO, William Nabrega says, as an e-commerce company focused on insurance products, our success strategy consists of building a highly advanced proprietary technology platform That's critical to bring insurance into the 21st century. And then acquiring small to medium-sized insurance brokers in each country. You know, that's been a fantastic strategy because it instantly gave CQS the licenses that they needed to operate, a customer base, a big database, 
um, the infrastructure that was required, and most importantly, a pool of hugely intelligent and experienced, talented people that worked for the brokers that were acquired. I mean, it was a, a fantastic strategy. And post-acquisition integration is never easy, but by overlying our online technology over the current infrastructure, we can quickly scale up revenues and build a common brand and culture. That's what Williams says. So, and it, it's been amazing. I mean, it started about six months ago and has gone from zero to a company value of about 140 million in six months. I mean, that's a fantastic effort. The sixth key for achieving success in foreign markets is to fully understand local market conditions and the customs in those countries. Now, entrepreneurs are usually leaders by nature, but blindly leading from the front in a market that you don't know anything about um, could really lead to some bad outcomes. You know, there's heaps of cultural sensitivities and language barriers and local customs and ambiguous regulations and other factors that mean, you know, from the trenches, if you're in the trenches with people from the local area, that's the clever thing to do. Business startup specialist Matthew Reed from Habitat Travel says, there is always a difference between markets, especially in the Asian reading region. Spending time on your user experience by testing your product in a foreign market and understanding local buying habits before you take a tech idea live is paramount to your success. Now, the final key to being successful with your business in a foreign country is to choose your IT platform wisely. Ajit Malakode is Managing Director at Rackspace Asia Pacific, which is a managed cloud company. And uh, Ajit advises you to pick a platform where you can fail quickly and pivot very fast if you have to. Today, most businesses, no matter what they are, from taxis to healthcare, you know, they're all now IT businesses, aren't they? You think of Uber and Waze, and they're all IT businesses. And um, this invariably means picking an IT platform that can help you achieve the results you want. And cloud computing allows you to test ideas quickly and achieve results fast. So launching a business in a country where you're not a native has its challenges, but it's far from impossible, as CQS International has demonstrated, and the benefits can be sizable, again, as CQS International has demonstrated. Now, the next piece of news could be interesting. Apple filed a patent on Thursday last week so it's less than a week ago, for a hotspot device that would bring data connectivity to portable electronic devices. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that you could bring this hotspot device with you instead of your iPhone and in theory still be able to use your Apple Watch's internet-based activities. From the patent diagrams, the Apple hotspot looks extremely compact and portable and you turn it on with a twist, just like you turn on a flashlight. You know, the new flashlights where you just turn the, turn the base and it goes on. And by portable electronic devices, Apple is almost certainly referring to the Apple Watch, which um, relies on your iPhone's data connection for some of its functionality, like um, things like 
receiving notifications, replying to text with canned responses, making or receiving calls, all that sort of stuff. When you're offline, right now, the watch can only tell you the time. Well, it can track your fitness and play music too, but essentially it tells you the time. And why would you want to buy a watch just to tell the time? (laughs) Apple's pattern for hotspot sheds some light into how Apple is exploring different ways to solve the watch's lack of functionality when it's not connected to your phone or a hotspot. Of course, all hotspots add to your monthly phone bills as they need a separate data subscription from a cellular network provider. This is where the AT&Ts, the Verizons and co. come in for the kill. Not everyone would be too thrilled with the cost just to get notifications or texts during a workout on your phone, on your watch. So, but keep in mind that just because Apple filed a patent for a hotspot doesn't mean it'll actually ever do it. They, they certainly file a heap of patents. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show Worldwide on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. And I urge everybody, bring out the entrepreneur in you. I mean, if you're the sort of person who wants to sit in a bank and count $10 bills and ask Mrs. Smith how she is and pat a cat and ask her whether she wants $10 or $20, then, by all means, work in a bank. And you'll probably get cheap home loans too. I mean, you'd want to. You're bored shitless bloody 40 hours a week, so you'd want to get cheap home loans, wouldn't you? Anyway, so we're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or we'll email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is being sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries this next week. Um, We received a great response from the May newsletter, so make sure you get the June edition. We've also had a lot of questions sent sent out a summary of each week's radio program, which we've done now for about the last five or six weeks with great feedback. Thank you for that. It's really appreciated. Today's interview is with a guy named Terry Drayton. He is a perler, this guy. And if you're not from Australia, it means... Really cool guy. He loves entrepreneurship. He spent 29 years doing nine startups. He's as funny as funny. And after his third startup, he went back to school to become an entrepreneurship professor. But he decided not to do that. He'd go on ahead and do his fourth startup. Terry's the CEO of his new startup, Storage, which has got a double R in it, S-T-O-R-R-A-G-E which has begun in Seattle and about to roll out through other states. It's a brilliant idea, and it's an Uber-like business model that's got the potential to disrupt the $20 billion-plus self-storage industry. I'll be back with Terry in just a minute, and I am sure that you will enjoy this interview. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? 
Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show. We give you an insight into the lives of some of the most interesting business people the services they provide and what makes them tick. You know, it's very difficult to create a successful business. doesn't matter how good you are, how clever you are, it is bloody tough. And we need all the help we can get. And that's why it's so important for all of us, doesn't matter what sort of business you're in or what level of business you're in, to have mentors and to take on board the advice that you can glean from all of the people that have gone before you and been successful. You can get a lot of good advice from people who haven't been successful too because um, you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from drifting through with successes. Today's guest is Terry Drayton. He loves entrepreneurship and he thinks that it's very important for our society and our country and I agree. Um, Entrepreneurs are what makes this country great at what drives our economy, at what employs our people, and, uh, and it inspires enthusiasm and, and great productivity. And it's, it, it's the perfect gateway to upward mobility and overall prosperity. Now, Terry spent 29 years doing nine startups, and he was an investment banker, not that we'll like him for that, but before that, he helped other entrepreneurs raise money. After his third startup, he went back to school to become an entrepreneurship professor. Didn't finish it. Instead, he went out and did another startup, his fourth. He's a 15-year volunteer, teacher, mentor, judge, and board member at the University of Washington's Burke Center for Entrepreneurship, which is one of the top 20 rated programs in the U.S. and one of the top five for public schools. Now, Terry's the CEO of his new startup, I guess this is his ninth storage in Seattle. And he's living proof that you don't need an education to be a successful entrepreneur. His English teacher would be horrified because he spells the company name with two R's. S-T-O-R-R-A-G-E. It's appalling. Kids kids are not going to get anywhere. Storage is a great idea, though. And it's an Uber-like business model. It has the potential to disrupt the $20 billion-plus self-storage industry. So, why don't we find out what we can about this guy? Hi, Terry. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Thanks, Bob. <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying the I'm enjoying the misspelling. That uh, that's pretty fun. Uh, it's, it's all it's all about the domain names. You know, uh, the storage one was gone. So I understand. What we are? <laughs> yeah, I understand perfectly. Um, you were there with the dot uh, the dot com bubble in the late nineties, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you raised nearly half a billion dollars for Home Grocer and uh, to rack up sales of a million dollars a day, only to see it fail when um, money became impossible to get. It's just amazing when you look back at it, what happened and how it happened so bloody quickly, and what happens when money does dry up. Jeez, it was just left a trail of devastation. Now, there are lots of people who think that this market that we're in now is overheated and that valuations are ridiculously high, and I'm one of those, I subscribe to that theory. So what's the difference between the dot-com boom and the current tech boom? Well, I, I think, you know, for someone who is as old as I am and has seen this kind of come and go, with each with each kind of wave, everybody says, you know, this time it's going to be different. Sure. But I think there's always, you know, it's always um, supply and demand, um, the venture community and, and the investment folks. And, and I'm glad you don't hold too much against me. I was very young when I was an investment banker. Uh, <laughs> and all I learned was that... Um, the, the only difference between people who started businesses and those that didn't was that the ones that started them actually did something about it. I mean, everybody talks about them, but, but I never saw any difference. So helping other people raise money, I figured that the bar was actually low enough that I could get under it <laughs> So uh, uh, and all that stuff. But, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting now looking at some of them. And I think, you know, there are some amazing businesses out there. And so, you know, do I think Uber is, a, you know, is a, an amazing business and a transformative one? Absolutely. It's hard to imagine it's worth $50 billion. Yeah, um, I agree. And, but, you know, and that sort of stuff. And I think the thing that, you know, the, you know, now they call all of those businesses unicorns. Yeah. Um, you know, they're worth more than yeah. a billion in doing that. And, and we were a unicorn, you know, back in the late 90s. And um, I think the biggest thing was overnight we went from being able to raise, you know, $100 million in a few phone calls to not being able to raise a million dollars, you know, with months of work. And so I worry so much with those businesses that, where the, where the business model is unsustainable, you know, we lose money on every order, but we're going to make it up on volume. And our primary business seems to be raising, you know, hundreds of millions of, of dollars all the time. And we're going to have a fantastic database. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I think it is fascinating. Now, I would be one of the ones that's a believer that, that some of that data it does have huge value, but, but you've got to have the, the staying power. So, you know, can Google make a big data play? Absolutely. And Facebook and all those ones, because they're going to be around. But if you're, if you're a new startup, I mean, I think, I just think, you know, like every other cycle, sometimes some of this stuff, when the, when the merry-go-round, you know, sort of stops, is going to be very ugly for some of the businesses. And, you know, you talk so much about how we share our experiences to help others learn. It was a truly horrific experience to watch your, you know, my business die yeah. uh, and, and be, and with nothing to be able to do for it. So I, it's not something I would wish on, you know, my worst enemy. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I feel, I feel, I know I, worry for some of these businesses and, and, and ones that um, just because you're successful in raising money does not mean you have a viable business. You know, yeah. And, you, and you've got to have a bit of chutzpah, haven't you? I mean, Uber, the, Uber today uh, has gone to the banks asking for $1 billion <laughs> in credit. A billion in credit at the bank. It, it, Fuck. <laughs> 
The yeah. only banks I know are the ones that say, you want what? No. <laughs> well, well and, it, and it's funny. And they will play the fashion game. I mean, the only industry I think that's more fashion conscious than the fashion industry is the investment industry, both the investment banks and the venture capitalists. I mean, I think Uber could ask you to, you know, extract your firstborn child or something like that in their next deal sheet or whatever. Yeah. And people are probably willingly sign up for it. But so all fun. Okay, now this is a, this is a a bit touchy, but I don't mean it to be. One of the keys to being successful these days is to have a great public relations company working for you, and you sure have that. Let me let me tell you what Ralph says about you. Terry has several personal traits that are key to a successful entrepreneur. He's relentlessly high energy and a half-full glass type of guy. He's resilient, a master communicator, humble. Hmm. I'm starting to worry about this guy's judgment but and fun, and he inspires loyalty in his staff and even in his investors. And he's smart and savvy. In many ways, he looks like and rese- resembles Seattle Seahawk head coach Pete Carroll. God. Are you kidding me? No, that's the bullshit they sent me. So, what... One of the most, <laughs> one of the most important. You've got all these qualities, right? Um, so, what's Good the most God. important qualities required by an entrepreneur in today's market? Is it relentless high energy? Is it amazing positivity? Is it being a great communicator? Humble. Jesus, you're about the last person I'd call humble, but nevertheless. Okay. So, what, what's the most important qualities? So, so my very first uh, 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 boss when I was back when I was an investment banker was uh, a very, a very smart guy. And his basic line that has stuck with me my whole career is persistence is omnipotent. And his basic theme is in everything in life, if you just stick, sticking at it is the number one thing that you need to do. And so I've always kind of had that at the, um, um, at the back of my mind. Now, what, what, you know, one thing Ralph says is I am a, hopelessly optimistic person and, and I'm sure you've seen some of that Malcolm Gladwell research yeah. and he call he calls it delusionally optimistic. And you know, if you're if you're if you look at as you mentioned the statistics of, of how bad it is, you know, and how how unlikely you are to have a successful business. Most sane people would basically stay right away from it. Um, But I'm one of those ones where I actually don't believe the glass is half full. I believe it's bubbling over. Right. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I think, yeah, I agree. Let's just just take you up on one point about that. Being persistent and being relentless and staying at it. Um, most of the successful businesses today at some point early in their career had to pivot. You know, you, you plan something that looks brilliant, you get out there and you start to do it and, you know, the shit hits the fan and the whole thing's a mess. Um, if Do people that are relentless and driven and this is going to work and I really believe in it, do they miss that pivot point? Well, I, I guess maybe I'd, I'd probably def, uh, say it a little differently. So I'm a great believer in pivots, and so so well. Back in the day, I was a um, I was a halfback, and we'd have this brilliantly called play, and then basically, you know, as soon as the ball snapped, all hell breaks loose, yeah. and you just look for freaking daylight. Yeah. And so I'm a I'm a total believer. Uh, a viable business, you know, you I like to pick a category. So I really like the storage space. The offsite storage space is a great thing. You know, it's twenty uh, twenty billion dollars. It's a great space, but I'm not a hundred percent positive that we've got the exact right offering for customers. So when we when we start and we get out there, 
I'm convinced we can find it, and that's my relentless thing. But right. what we're going to do is just keep trying stuff until we find things that work. So, so I would be completely. I, I have no sort of. There's no sacred cows with me. It doesn't matter what. Like, if we yeah. find a better name than storage with two R's, we'll freaking take it. If yeah, sure, we originally okay. started off, yeah, yeah, and the branding color we we picked originally was orange. We tested it, and everyone hated it. Yeah. So we basically tested it and got a different one. So, so I I think pivot is the most important thing you do. I mean, we used to. Call Call it learning. I mean, I know it's you know it's not as nice as a, a word. Pivot sounds like you've really screwed up. But any <laughs> any business, I mean, but but no one no one gets it right the first time. I no, mean, we all right. try different things. Yeah. So 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 I think and that that whole thing you've got to be willing to experiment, to try, to fail because you get it wrong ninety percent of the time. It's just. If you keep banging away at it long enough, you know, if you're if you're if you're too dumb to quit, um, which I, I would be, um, you know, you kind of do it. So, so about the only thing I wish he'd said I was more like Marshawn Lynch or something than Pete Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> I do have that big grin. I, I will admit I am a big I'm a big uh, a big smile guy. But uh, but but you should have asked my wife for some other ones. She would probably beg to differ on a number of those, especially the master communicator part. <laughs> So what, what's the best advice anybody gave you about being entrepreneur or did nobody give you advice and you just started off with your first one and you've learned, you know, as you've gone along the way through your mistakes? You, you know, I think um, so much of growing up, um, um, my dad was uh, worked for another company, worked for a company, he was, uh, um, he was an oil and gas guy, and he had a corporate job, but he always wanted to have his own business. So we just talked and talked and talked about, about that and what was what was possible. It was kind of seeing was possible. You know, I just saw this thing today, what do you think about that coming up with ideas? And so I'd say, you know, his thing was always... Um, if you can see what the opportunity is, you know, you can, you can turn it into reality. You know, you just kind of have to work hard at it, um, on that piece. Um, that, that best advice I ever got actually was my first boss who said that the, the persistence is omnipotent. That's the one that's kind of stuck with me. You know, the number of times, the number of investors I have who turned me down, oh, say 10 or 12 times in order to be there. I'm nothing if not relentless is one of the, the, the comments that kind of comes back to you. And, and do it with a good humor on that piece. Um, now, I grew up in Canada, and uh, in Canada, being an entrepreneur is not something that's, um, that's yeah. very well regarded. So, you know, um, I regularly got the, the thing, and I always remember this one banker telling me that, you know, why don't you just get a nice government job or work for a big bank, you know? Yeah. Entrepreneurs are kind of social pariahs. You know, people will look down at you with disdain, you know, which yeah. is the reason why you moved to the U.S. where we're mainstream, you know? Yeah. People, but one of the things, Australia's a bit like Canada, I guess, in that if you're mm -hmm. an entrepreneur in Australia, nobody wants to give you money, nobody wants to give you help, nobody wants to do anything. Over here, um, people applaud entrepreneurs. I mean, they, they want to support mm -hmm. you, they'll give you help, they'll do whatever. So I understand where you're coming from with the, with the Canada thing. Um, but being an entrepreneur... I mean, I can't imagine not being an entrepreneur. I've always been an entrepreneur, and well, apart from a couple of short periods, but um, you know, it, it's exciting. You can you can, you build your own future. You build you make your own decisions. You you are in charge of your own destiny. And yet, somebody who works in a bank is a good, solid citizen. And you know, the most they ever do is say, "Good morning, Mrs. Smith. How are you?" How's the kids? Would you like that in tens or twenties? I mean, you'd fucking kill yourself in a week, wouldn't you? And yet they're the pillar of no, the community. Yeah, and the pillar of the community, and yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, saying hello and no, no, no. I'm sorry, we can't get that. If you got any more collateral, we only like dirt. You know, give us some, give us some dirt you can yeah. borrow against. But and you want to borrow no, hundred thousand? Well, you need hundred and fifty thousand in our bank before we'll lend it to you. Yeah, Jeez. no, I think it's different. But but I think I think the reason you know it's always amazing to watch the U.S. reinvent itself with yeah. each successive one that people call them up. But I think it, it is that resilient spirit, and and they say here if you have screwed up something. People then think you're one step closer to being successful. You know, yeah. the the reverse in Canada, it's like, oh no, I knew that wasn't going to work. You know, that yeah. was a disaster for day one or whatever it is. And yeah. so, but but I think that that's that's uh, that's unfortunate for the culture and for the economies of Australia, of Canada, of, of, of just about everywhere else. In the Although world. England's getting yeah, a lot England. better, I must admit, it's 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 getting much better. But um, mm-hmm. here, you go to somebody and you say, "What do you think of this idea?" And they say, uh, "If you're in Australia, uh, you say, what do you think of this idea?'" And they say, oh, "I knew somebody had tried that. That that'll never work. You know, I've that'll seen never that before. Work. That'll never work. You know. So when you go in and you say, I need five hundred thousand dollars. Do you want to invest in this? You know, go. Shit. Good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's, well, what's I, I would. I, <laughs> um, yeah, I would say I've had a few more colorful um, uh, descriptions of that, uh, that rejection. Yeah. <laughs> What's the worst but, but, advice anybody gave you about um, being an entrepreneur? Well, well, it's actually, it's pretty close to what you mentioned before, that um, there's a difference between being stubborn and being persistent. Yeah, um, sure. You know, and that thing where people are unwilling to kind of accept it, um, you know, the, the to, to listen to what customers say. At the end of the day, customers are right. You may think you've got the greatest idea and the greatest feature, but they, you know, they vote with their wallets and their feet. Absolutely. And if, and if, yeah, if you're, you know, it was objectively, if no one buys your idea, it's a bad idea. You know, if you got it out, got it out there and you tried it and, and nobody liked it, then you need to go back to the drawing board and find something that they actually will. And so I'd say that I've had a few people just, you know, ignore what everybody says, you know, you trust your gut feel and do it, you know, as opposed to, you know, be open, listen to, to people who've had other experiences, look at the data, you know, actually, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's nice to have an opinion, but I'd rather have data, you know, in terms of what customers actually did or didn't do. Well, how do you equate that to people like, um, Let's say Jobs and Musk. I mean, why don't we, um, you know, I'm a bit of an engineer and I tinker around. Why don't I build a rocket that nobody else has been able to build? NASA hasn't been able to build. I don't know anything about building rockets, but I'll build one. Why don't I build a car and I'll price it at (laughs) $125,000? And, you know, people are going to flock to my car. Um, Or... You know, I'm I'm going to build a phone. I'm going to build a computer. I'm going to build a phone, and it's going to have all these millions of things. I'm going to build a watch that's a, an inch square, and it, you know, it, it's going to have 500 buttons, and you're going to be able to do anything. I mean, surely the public wasn't ready for any of those things. No, no, I agree, and, and, and I think Steve Jobs was absolutely right when he said that you know market research is is basically worthless when you're trying to invent new stuff. Yeah. Um, and then the, be- the best research is to do you know put it out there. You know, for him, I think his vision was amazing. He was the ultimate you know user, user experience thing. For him, it all came down to that fabulous, easy customer experience that was just better than anything that's out there. And he you know, also, Musk, I think, is. He also had this fantastic understanding of design and what looked 
great. Mm. And the, so it had the functionality, but it also looked fabulous. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a style. Now it's a complete, I mean, look at them. They're taking share now at the highest possible price. They're kind of, you know, wiping everybody else because now, you know, it's kind of like if you don't have an iPhone, you're kind of a, you know, giant loser. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but, but on that one, now Musk, I think is, is another, it's just another brilliant one where it's reinventing industry. So, you know, we're trying to do an electric car. How the heck do we get a cost-effective battery? How do we do that? And so looking for those standard components. So, you, you know, who, what, you know, the cheapest things are often things done in huge volume. So what's the highest volume, you know, super uh, efficient battery? Well, it turns out to be a laptop battery. So <laughs> no one else would be crazy enough to string together 10,000 laptop batteries to power the car. But, of course, he did. Yeah. And then the same thing, you know, let's, let's put together, you know, we need electric motors to do it. Well, who makes a lot of motors of a certain size and find the one that, oh yeah, well, this is a standard one. They make 10 bazillion of these instead of designing something from scratch. Yeah. You know, I just think I mean, for him, I think the business model innovations, the, uh, it's the creativity applied to all the different parts of the process and trying to, to, to just think out of the box. Everyone's always done it this way. Well, you know, is there a different way of doing it? He looks at it from in 3D instead of everyone's looking at it in 1D. Yeah. So, and those guys are, are, are brilliant. And, and I think see what's possible and lead society into some of the new things. So, Musk, you know, SpaceX, Musk is really it? extraordinary. But, you know, the interesting <clears throat> thing about Musk is that it wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, he was sleeping on his mother's couch. I mean, it was years, but it wasn't that long ago. And, um, you know, if you listen to his wife, his wife says, you know, Elon is absolutely brilliant entrepreneur, but fuck, he's a lousy father. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's... That's balancing... It is balancing. So, so I have um, I've been very fortunate in my career to to um, early on a, a good you know, one of my best buddies from uh, from back in, in the um, university days, Canada College here, um, uh, got me involved in the um, Young Presidents Organization, the Entrepreneurs Organization. Yep. Actually, I said the Entrepreneurs Organization is great, and one of the things that they try and encourage you to do is actually have some life balance, which. I mean, entrepreneurs were really, really shitty at that. Uh, yeah, and again, sure. ask my wife. Um, and so that's probably been one of the best things because it's not sustainable. You know, that whole thing of, you know, I've been fortunate to have found a saint who's put up with me for 26 years. Right. Um, but, but you know, <laughs> there were a few thoughts when, when, when she wasn't putting up with me very well. Yeah. Um, or, or, and that, so, so I think that's there. And then Musk, I think the other one was, you know, geez, it wasn't, it was only a few years ago when everyone thought he was crazy with both Tesla and SpaceX were overextended. Yeah. And I think he was again sleeping on his couch, on his couch or something at that stage. Yeah. And now look at him. So, I mean, again, you know, you're, you're brilliant when it's going well and you're a total idiot when it's going bad. And, but you know, yeah, actually didn't change anything in those two days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I think Marissa Meyer got the. Marissa Meyer got the life balance thing right. She said, you know, you need a balance in life. You've got a balance between work and leisure and and your lifestyle. And the way you've got to do that is the first 20 years it's all work and the last 20 years it's all lifestyle because trying to mix the two together (laughs) doesn't work. And I think that's probably pretty accurate. You know, it's funny. I guess I'm optimistic. It's, uh, it's, It's easy for me to say that now because, of course, I've now got both, you know, 
one one kid already graduated from college, the other one is now, you know, as a senior this year. And so they're not underfoot. But certainly, I mean, my kids and my, my wife paid a significant penalty for me, me just not being around through sure. pretty much the entire dot-com days. Yeah, um, I and now my son... Yeah, which, which is tough. But, but I think if you can figure out, but that's again, maybe you choose a more lifestyle-oriented business to be an entrepreneur in, where you can have a decent life um, instead of doing these crazy, you know, yeah. crazy ones uh, okay. on, on that side. You've done nine startups, so you've obviously got a commitment issue. Um, <laughs> at, at what point in a startup do you decide that it's time to bail, and what influences that decision, or do you hang around until they absolutely go broke and you say, oh, well, shit, I think I better think of another one? Was that what, <laughs> now, with those startups, at what point did you decide that mm, this isn't going to work? For me, the part that I get excited about is solving the problem, is the, the creative process involved in solving the problem and trying to figure out how to bring. So I've been a pioneer in, in most of the industries I've gone into because I kind of saw what was possible. And then I, I, I generally stayed with them. And so, you know, I'd, I'm nine businesses over 29 years or whatever. So I'm about three years for most of them. Yeah. And that's been usually long enough to figure it out. And it's when it becomes routine. So I'm really excited about doing the early financial projections and trying to dig into the numbers to see what works and solving all the problems. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably a product guy more than anything else, looking at the product, you know, the service, exactly how, you know, the customer interaction kind of works. Right. But once it works, I, fi I find I like, you know, I find it very, very difficult just to maintain my interest. So, I mean, that's, you know, pure ADD. Yes. Um, so you want to find then, somebody and then, to buy it at that point. <clears throat> Yeah, or just recruit a great team. Right. Um, you know, usually I, I'll try and recruit people all the way through the process because you need you need people who are totally details oriented. So I will be uber details oriented early on, and then then I'm regularly accused by about year three or four of being a macro manager, the yeah. other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Where unless it's a new product feature, I'm generally not, or, or international expansion or something like that. You know, I, think that's uh, I would spend thing. most. I think after you've been in a business a couple of years, you need to become a macro manager. Otherwise, your company's going to fail. Well, well and, and it's hard to attract people. You know what I mean? You yeah. want to attract and retain good people. Well, I mean, part of it, the one thing I, I have that, that is usually appreciated by the same people. And so the same, the same people are, are, are basically dumb enough to, to work with me again and again and invest with me again and again. And I think part of it is because of that is that, you know, they get to, you actually do, I actually do want their, their opinion and to, to whatever degree as possible, try and make them make the decisions. So the person is closest to the decision. You know, we've always had it, and I've done a lot of businesses that are del delivery, pickup and delivery, where there's a driver that basically comes to your, you know, your door. Those people have always had total discretion to solve whatever the customer is up upset about. Right. You know, kind of, if they did something really dumb repeatedly, we'd probably talk to them, but if they said, yeah, you get, you know, six months free of something, or, you know, we'll give you a free whatever, yeah. we would basically just say, fine, ask them what it's going to take to basically make them, you know, uh, happy. To get the deal. And, yeah. you know, you just, yeah, and use your, your good judgment. And what, I've never been burned by that. You know, we've, we've never been burned by, the, by our staff doing that. We've been burned the odd time by a customer taking advantage of that. Sure. But it's rare. Most, most people are, are very reasonable. I agree. Um, on, on that okay. Side. Now, you've raised half a billion dollars in funding for your startups, and and I'm not a raising funds type guy. You know, it's something that is not in my DNA. But um, raising funds is difficult. So do you do you enjoy it? And what what makes you good at it? Well, it, I'm it, learning this now. One is, 
Well, and this one, this one is there. Um, it's a necessary evil. And, and I'm saying that it is the least, this is the thing I enjoy doing least. I've never liked it. I mean, it's funny. Uh, early on, I can't remember uh, one time, it was like the two things I never wanted to do was public speaking and fundraising. And as an entrepreneur, you spend most of your time doing, doing both. one or yeah. the other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, 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 but I think what it is, and so I, um, early in my career, and it was always, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very enthusiastic person, and I'm very passionate about what I'm working on, and, and that usually comes through. And so with, sure. with people, it was nothing other than, I didn't have a canned pitch. You know, I usually had a canned pitch, and I'd toss that out, and I'd just start getting going on about what was exciting about it and answer their questions and, and try and get them excited about what was possible. And, you know, it, it would be great to get you involved in, in, uh, in helping do this thing. And, and normally, the one thing I do on funding that's probably a little different is I usually seek out people specifically for skill sets or connections. So, you know, um, on my current one, um, um, in the, in the storage business, you know, a friend of a friend was the guy who was the founder, uh, Neil Balters, the founder of California closets. Well, I figure he knows a heck of a lot about, you know, um, storage and, and on-site and off-site and racking all it. So I just reached out and said, Neil, you know, um, you know, my buddy Steely says you're a great guy and I would absolutely love to have you involved in the business. And here's why. And, 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 and again, it's, it's a thing of, it's like he's pre-qualified and he does have expertise and, and most people want to help you. I mean, that's yeah. the other thing, you know, sort of really found. And the same thing, find out somebody who's got an expertise in, um, another guy, you know, self-storage or somebody else in franchise. And just ask them specifically for their help. And so that, that I'd say for me, it's been less it's been less about selling probably and more about marketing on the fundraising side. And identify what you're yeah. You know, like identify what you're looking for. But I but it's not something I've I've ever enjoyed. Now, um I really had a bad experience at the end of Home Grocer because I couldn't save it. There was nothing I could do. And investors that had promised they would always be there and bail us out all, you know, stop returning my calls. Yeah. And so I didn't, I was really very, very jaded for at least probably 10 years. I did not want to raise any money. So I let a lot of opportunities go by simply because I was unwilling to do the fundraising that would have been required. Um, changed a little bit in the last little while when a good friend, you know, sort of said to me, one of my friends from an entrepreneur's group, uh, Ben Hansen, and just said, you don't want to be, you don't want, um, you don't I'm trying to think of exactly the way he said it, but it was basically, um, don't let your unwillingness to raise money be the reason that you don't make this a huge success. Right. And it was kind of like a smack on the head. And since then I've just gone the reverse way, which is I'm freaking dialing for dollars today. So here's the deal. I'm going to relentlessly call you and let, until you invest. And so here you can, you know, uh, save yourself a lot of pain and basically just get your checkbook out right now. Or I'm just going to keep bugging you until you finally relent uh, and have a bit of fun with it, with a bit of humor, okay. you know. Hey, it's, cool. it's your buddy dialing for dollars. Yes, <laughs> I am looking funny from you. And, and, and it's kind of funny if you, because often it's a difficult thing for people to bring up and stuff. But, but you know, these days, I mean, there's amazing angel networks. Lots of people have, you sure. know, been very successful in the Bay Area and otherwise. So, so, but I, I view it now, I probably don't dislike it as much as I used to. Um, but, but, but you just have to do it. That's, that's yeah. a big part of your job. If you're raising, you know, if you're, if you need a bunch of capital, that's your freaking job. So suck it up and get it done. Yeah. Okay. We've only got a couple of minutes left. So give me your best pitch on storage. Tell us all about storage and why we should be all going straight to your website and looking it up. <laughs> well, self-storage is, is I think the next, in, you know, sort of industry that is going to be disrupted. And, 
it's a business that um, um, where convenience is not something that's sort of part of the vernacular. And so I think for us, what we do is we call it ballet storage. And so, you know, everyone will think about, you know, um, us doing the work for them and that's pretty much it. So what we do that's different is instead of making you go to a facility, rent a fixed size place, a 10 foot by 10 foot unit or 10 by 20, we basically come to you, we drop off boxes that you can put your stuff in, we put a little ID tag on it so you can take pictures and give it names and everything and track it easily, and then we pick it up and store it for you. And when you want it back, we just deliver it to you. And all that, you know, including the pickup, the delivery, and the storage, will cost you about the same or less than what traditional self-storage is. So, so we think customers are going to vote with their feet and their wallets, and they're yeah, going to say... That sounds like a pretty good idea, I reckon. Because yeah. and storage is a pain in the ass. You got to go. You get your rent your storage thing. You go and you've got this huge box, and you've got a quarter full, and you're paying for the lot. And yeah, I can see it. I like it. Terry, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to know more about storage, now don't forget this guy can't spell. It's S-T-O-R-R-A-G-E, two R's. So go to storage with two R's dot com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice American Business after this short break. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. Now, we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, and today we are broadcasting from my hometown of Los Angeles. And for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, and I'm sure there's a few of you, I probably sound like I'm an Australian. Well, I am, but I've actually been living in Los Angeles for 27 years, so I'm um, sort of a an Aussie American or something. Now, it seems like for everything you do, you need to have a password. And I don't know about you, but I seem to have dozens and dozens of them. They're impossible to remember. So they tell you to, you know, have different passwords for different things. And they say to make it complicated. I mean, you you go crazy and it's you know, they're, they're impossible to remember. So many vendors give us clues to help us remember. You know, what is your dog's name? What is your cat's name? What's the first school you went to? So, you know, your favorite food, all things that you've probably stuck on your Facebook page or on Twitter or somewhere so that um, everybody knows the answers anyway. <laughs> just so that you can make it easy as possible for somebody to hack into whatever it is that you need a password for. I mean, the whole thing's too ridiculous for words. A new study from Google said that your password questions have a number of major shortcomings. Duh. The main problem is that they're either easy to remember, so they're not secure, or they're 
somewhat secure, but they're very seldom both. It stands to reason that if security questions are easy to remember, they're probably easier to hack. <laughs> but if they're too complicated, the person who created them can't remember them. <laughs> so either way, you're gone. According to Google's research, which was based on hundreds of millions of secret answers and millions of account recovery claims, so they know what the, all the secret words are, um, 40% of English-speaking people in the United States couldn't recall the answers to their secret questions. <laughs> I think that's funny. The numbers were actually much, much worse for the safest questions, the ones that would be hardest for a hacker to guess. Um, a good solid question is to put in your frequent flyer number, and a lot of people do that, but only 9% of people can remember the answer. <laughs> You know, I've flown 5 million miles and I've used my frequent flyer number 27 trillion times. Haven't got the faintest idea what it is. Meanwhile, simple questions are really easy for hackers to bypass. For example, what is your favourite food? You're not going to believe this. You know what most people put down? Pizza. <laughs> so any hacker just gets on favourite food. Okay, pizza. Jeez. Worse, the full study notes that a lot of services use questions with trivially small pools of potential answers. Like, um, who's your favourite superhero? Well, there's only about eight. <laughs> so your hacker can just guess and be pretty close. So if, you, if you're able to make up your own security question, the majority of you make up something that's very easy to guess. And 16% of password security questions have answers that are available on Facebook. The study also showed that 63% of people said they never considered the possibility their security question could be used against them. Google suggests a two-factor authentication as a safer way to confirm a user's identity. If you have an option to get access codes sent to your phone or backup email when registering for a site, that's what you should do. Now, the recommendations for your password, a good security question will have the following characteristics. Easy to remember even 10 years from now. Blimey, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. At least thousands of potential answers. <laughs> God. And not a question that you would ever put on Facebook or on Twitter or mention in an article or an interview. A simple one or two word answer and one that never changes. So they sound like good solutions, but boy, a bit hard. Now, this show's all about entrepreneurs. We love entrepreneurs here at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And Danielle Bernstein is a 22-year-old blogger behind We Wore What? And she gets paid up to $15,000 for a single Instagram post. Woo. The money comes from brands that want to get their products noticed by the 992,000 people who follow her on the app. 992,000 people. Jeez. Like many other fashion bloggers, Bernstein uh, posts seemingly casual snapshots of her daily outfits, along with information about how to buy the clothes and the accessories she's wearing. Yeah, you know, the ridiculous thing about this is that 
what a followers probably don't realise it that most of these posts are the res- result of negotiations with fashion and lifestyle brands. How much will you pay me to put this on the on my um, post? Well, how much will you pay me to put this on the Instagram post? Ah, oh, okay. Well, I hate that, but you're paying me more, so I'll, I'll wear it. But brands are willing to pay a high price tag for that. It sounds incredible, but brands now spend $1 billion a year on sponsored Instagram posts. <laughs> Jeez. The amount of money that companies pay is directly connected to the number of followers that an Instagram user has. When Bernstein hits the million follower mark, she'll be able to charge even more. On average, if you have hundreds of thousands of followers, you can make up to $5,000 a post. But if you have 5 million followers, your fee can be up to $100,000 a post. Sheesh. Now, I phone about 5 million miles that I mentioned with United, and it's cost me a bloody fortune. But you don't have to be a frequent flyer, become a million miler these days, at least on United. United's announced a new bug bounty program that will reward hackers who find vulnerabilities in its system. Depending on the severity, tech-savvy bounty hunters will be rewarded with 50,000, 250,000 or 1 million mile reward miles. And the United deal is the first for an airline discovery industry. Now, any bug must be new. And the finder of the bug can't live in a country sanctioned by the US government and he can't be the creator of the bug <laughs> that makes sense i guess so there's a challenge for you hackers go out there and find bugs in the united system but don't tell me about it because i don't like flying enough as it is you're listening to the bob pritchard radio show worldwide on voice america business we're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful so if you have a question about any aspect of business whatsoever Please, that doesn't matter. It could be IP, it could be taxation, it could be, um, could be anything. It could be customer service. It could be no matter what it is. Um, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air or email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is being sent out to over 16,000 business executives in about 60 countries next week. We received a great response to the uh, May newsletter, so be sure you get the June edition. Also, uh, it's my birthday next month, so I I want you all to start saving, send valuable presents. That'd be great. I'd appreciate that. We've had a lot of requests to send out a summary of each week's radio program, which we have been doing now for about five or six weeks. Had great feedback, so thank you for that. It's really appreciated. We're avid followers of LinkedIn, so become a contact on LinkedIn or on Twitter or Facebook. We would love to keep in touch with you. Thanks for joining us for today's show, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. In the meanwhile, remember that if you're not really pushing the envelope, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week you've been listening to the bob pritchard radio show please join us again next tuesday at 8 p.m eastern time 5 p.m pacific time on the voice america business channel until then enjoy another week of success in your business and your life